Good morning, and welcome to Trinity Heights Virtual Service. For the next two weeks, we're taking a break from our series in Genesis to think about some things which are needed for peace in our world and peace amongst each other. This week, I'll begin a train of thought needed for peace in our world. Next week, I'll follow a train of thought needed for peace amongst ourselves. And I thought in the run up to the election, uh, this series, which I'm entitling uh, War and Peace, uh, we might want to be thinking uh, about how we can make peace in our world and amongst ourselves. The great imperial power depicted in the book of Revelation is first century Rome, whose proper name has been replaced with heavily symbolic names. The first is the sea monster, the beast, which is intended to be a critique of Rome's awe-inspiring military might. The second is Babylon the Whore, an image of Rome's corrupting, sensual, commercial power. Rome's power is founded on war and conquest, but John also recognises that it cannot be reduced to this. As well as the irresistible military might of the beast, there are the deceptive wiles of the great harlot who offers us the comfortable way of life we've all become accustomed to, all those little things that make life so good. This is why the picture is of the whore riding the beast. Rome's military might allows her to offer us the luxuries that empire affords. And the empire doesn't ask much in return. The only thing the empire really asks of us is that when you see something you don't like, do yourself and everyone else a favour and look the other way. When you see something you don't like, overlook it. You love your country, don't you? you, you you're loyal to your party, aren't you? You believe in our institutions, don't you? Then look the other way. This sort of acquiescence begins from an overly appreciative relationship to the benefits a nation or empire provides. But it leads us to love the existing state of things, the status quo. This is why the desire to believe that we are part of an innocent empire, an innocent party, is the moment of greatest danger for the church, because it is the very moment when prophetic Christian witness to that empire becomes impossible. Here is how we depict our nations. This is Lady Liberty. This is Lady Britannia. And this is the goddess who represented Rome. These women are strong and beautiful and virtuous. These are the images we use to represent ourselves, to capture the spirit of our nation. And essentially, what John is doing with his use of imagery, he's saying, look, you think you're in bed with a beautiful woman, but in reality, you're in bed with a whore. The decadence of life in the empire comes from the extension of military might around the world. And so John says, in rather explicit terms, come out from her. Recently, my friend Nick took part in a seminar on politics and faith in light of the upcoming election. And it was attend attended by some of the best and brightest Democrats and Republicans, left and right, most of them Christians, nearly all of them Christians. And so I asked him this question. How often 
either from the presenters or panellists or from attendees during the Q&A, I asked how often was the subject of war brought up? Sadly, I already knew what the answer was going to be. He said it wasn't brought up at all. Not once. Not a single time. One of the ways that the early church attempted to disentangle itself from the evils of empire was to not participate directly in the violence of war. In fact, for the first three centuries of the church's life, they were pacifists. You, you couldn't even be formally catechized into the church if you were a soldier. So how is it possible that today the church, located in the heart of the empire, which like all empires extends its power into the world through death and bloodshed, how is it possible that Christians attending a seminar on faith and politics in the run-up to an election don't make a single mention of war. This isn't a strange exception. Over the last 20 years, what I've noticed is that it doesn't really matter if it is a church full of Democrats or a church full of Republicans. It doesn't matter if it is Christians in Texas or Christians in New York. War just isn't part of the discussion. And again, I ask, how is that possible? President Eisenhower, peering into America's future, as he put it, finished his time in office, choosing to use his final farewell address to issue the following urgent warning. Here's what he said. This conjunction of an immense military establishment and a large arms industry is new in the American experience. The total influence, economic, political, even spiritual, is felt in every city, every state house, every office of the federal government. We recognize the imperative need for this development, yet we must not fail to comprehend its grave implications. Our toil, resources, and livelihood are all involved. So is the very structure of our society. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisitions of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. Total influence, he says. I think the totalizing influence of the military-industrial complex is surely recognisable in the way that the poles of debate in our society have been established so as to exclude all talk of war from the discussion. The total influence, he says. It's even spiritual, he says. Well, it is spiritual influence when the Church of Jesus Christ can't even think the thought. The author Wendelberry makes this point. To live undestructively in an economy that is overwhelmingly destructive would require of any one of us or any small group of us a great deal more work than we have been able to do. How can we divorce ourselves from these destructive powers? The answer is not yet thinkable, and it will not be thinkable for some time. So we must begin the work of thinking it. We have to think about things differently for the sake of the gospel and the person of Jesus Christ.
But we have to zoom out, as it were, step out of the established poles of the debate, view things from 50,000 feet, because the gospel means we look beyond the borders of the empire, beyond our borders as Americans. And so I want to spend some time this morning refusing to look away. As a pastor, I fail to talk about this nearly enough. But everything I'm going to talk about is all right there in the, the sort of the periphery of our vision. It's all happening in the corner of our eye all the time where we never want to look, where we have, in fact, been conditioned not to look. So here's my attempt to begin looking in a more sustained way. Robert Kagan is the co-founder of the neoconservative think tank Project for a New American Century. Other prominent members included people like Paul Wolfowitz and Donald Rumsfeld. In 1997, the think tank drew a roadmap for American interventionism in the Middle East, including the invasion and occupation of Iraq and the American proxy wars and regime change wars in Libya and Syria. Naturally, during the 2016 elections, Robert Kagan, who still thinks the last 25 years of American interventionism in the Middle East have been a tremendous success, he supported and fundraised for the candidate he knew he, who would follow the roadmap and continue the trajectory. And of course, he'll do the same in this round of elections in 2020. So in 2016, Kagan fundraised on behalf of Hillary Clinton, and he's supporting Biden in 2020. Why would this neoconservative war hawk support Hillary and Biden? Kagan's publicly stated reasons for backing Clinton in the 2016 election was precisely because Trump's isolationism would steer America off course, away from the pol foreign policy agenda that Clinton had so reliably followed, first as a U.S. senator and then as a U.S. secretary of state. And Joe Biden has proved himself to be equally reliable in the Senate and as vice president. George Bush executed the war in Iraq with the backing of many others, including Clinton and Biden, who voted in favour of the American invasion and occupation, which resulted in 4.4 million internally displaced people and 268,000 forced to flee the country altogether. These numbers just roll off the tongue. There's so much radiation and other toxic materials released by US weapons fire which has resulted in a shocking rise in childhood diseases. You see, US armed forces expended six billion bullets, which released metal contaminants as uranium and mercury are both used in the manufacture of munitions. Iraq today now faces an epidemic of birth defects, including children being born with one eye, two heads, multiple tumours, tumours, complex nervous system issues. Childhood leukaemia and other types of cancers have had a 12-fold increase at a conservative estimate. As one doctor put it, we are seeing these things in numbers you cannot imagine. Members of the American Senate didn't have to vote to support this invasion and occupation but Biden and Clinton voted in favour of what is known as a war of aggression. 
Of course, they didn't call it a war of aggression. It was a preemptive war. A preemptive war, a.k.a. war of aggression, is often considered the worst of all war crimes because it contains the sum of its parts. And Biden didn't just vote for this war, he headed up a special committee for international affairs and he started pushing for the invasion and occupation of Iraq as far back as 1998, years before the war got going. And this is maybe the hard part, but I think the really important part to come to terms with. Bush and Biden and friends didn't just stumble accidentally into an Iraq war foisted on them by circumstance. They supported and promoted the war as a matter of policy driven by their ideology regarding American dominance in the world. And it's also really important to note that this has nothing to do with partisan politics. It's truly bipartisan. Republican and Democrat parties are never more cooperative with each other than when it comes to war. Joe Biden, as vice president, started to bomb Syria without congressional, congressional approval. Intelligence reports warned that if America engaged in a proxy war in the region, it would give rise to a group like ISIS, but these reports were ignored, much like Bush ignored the intelligence community before invading Iraq. And the subsequent war, prolonged by American intervention, has created 6.6 million refugees who fled the country and a further 6.7 million who were forced to flee their homes but are stuck inside the country. Uh, some of them are my friends. There are around 70 million refugees in the world today, most of them fleeing war. Half of them are children. Our foreign policy has been a major contributing factor that has driven 35 million children from their homes and forcing them into a cycle of desperate daily survival. Then there's Libya. I'll never forget Hillary Clinton coming on CNN and joking about American intervention in that country. She said, we came, we saw, he died and laughed out loud. What she didn't mention is the number of civilians who also died, or the women forced into the hijab, the women who were gang raped, the women who were trafficked, the women who have been hung. 80% of people who are trafficked are women. Thanks to militia armed by the US and backed by US airstrikes, Libya went from being the richest African nation, a functioning nation with actually the highest life expectancy and the lowest infant mortality and the highest UN development index in Africa to become a failed state. A failed state is where there is no central unified government and chaos reigns. And in this chaos, slave markets have popped up all over Libya. Today, you can now go to Libya and buy, for example, a Nigerian slave for as little as $200. And although Biden questioned the intervention beforehand, he didn't attempt to stand in their way. And afterward, Biden said, this was a job well done. During the same week that 17 Parisians were killed in the Charlie Hebdo attack, 2,000 Nigerians were slaughtered in Baga, Nigeria, by Boko Haram. 
Again, we have family friends from the region. You may not have heard about it as the later attack received scant media coverage and certainly no just sweet hashtags. But Boko Haram obtained their American weapons from the Libyan terrorists who we had armed and the aforementioned collapse of the country triggered a, a refugee crisis in which 19,000 mostly African migrants have drowned in the Mediterranean after being trafficked from Libya. Black lives matter. Then there is American support for Saudi genocide in Yemen, on which there has been a virtual media blackout. As Obama's point man on the Middle East said recently, we gave too much backing to Saudi Arabia. We should have scaled back military support much earlier. But the result of this US-backed genocide is that 15.9 million people face severe hunger and famine. Countless civilians have been killed in unlawful airstrikes using American weapons. Among the victims are a village of poor Yemenis who lived in dwellings of corrugated iron and cardboard, a school bus that was carrying 38 children, schools, hospitals, weddings, funerals. I won't talk about Somalia and Pakistan. There's so much more. But the point is that so much misery has been caused by the decisions made by the leaders of the most powerful nation the world has ever seen in the service of the military industrial complex. These invasions and proxy wars in the Middle East have simultaneously and exponentially multiplied death, disease, starvation, poverty, refugees, rape, people trafficking, and massive environmental damage in the region resulting from both weapons release and the astronomical energy needs of the US military at war. You see, war is not a single issue. It is in a sense to talk about all of these issues, which I know all of us care about. It is to talk about all of these issues at once. If you want to multiply these issues simultaneously and exponentially, start a war. If you want to cause the maximum amount of misery for the maximum amount of people, start a war. And it is glossed over by the media. Why does the media gloss over this? Because they're the ones who sold us these wars in the first place. It is an empirically verifiable fact that the news media have overwhelmingly supported every war, proxy war, regime change war that America and the West gets involved with. The New York Times, the Washington Post, CNN, Fox News, doesn't matter which because this has nothing to do with partisan politics. All the so-called left, so-called liberal, so-called progressive outlets have promoted these wars. And the vast proportion of the American public remain largely unperturbed by any of this. And this glossing over is a symptom of the systemic racism involved in American foreign policy, which trains us to think in terms of American lives and American institutions. As I've said before, the truth is most of us are more profoundly committed to America first than Donald Trump will ever be. 
But I've had conversations with friends from Lebanon who have seen the masses of refugees flowing into their country. Syrian friends whose homes have been destroyed. Libyans who have seen their institutions reduced to nothing. They feel they're far better off when the superpower is contained. For them, it's a sort of miracle that America has had an isolationist president for the last four years who hasn't started any new wars in his first term. The first in 39 years not to do so. This is precisely what Kagan and other neocons were concerned about. They warned us that this would be the case. And four years later, that's where we are. In 2015, John Bolton stood up in front of a cheering, packed-out arena and bragged about America going into Iraq, Syria, Libya, and next year he promised Iran. The crowd went wild. That was in 2015. But of course, the plan has been put on pause. For now. But for how long? In the following quote, Wendell Berry is talking about the environment, but I'm adapting it here to talk about war. There is no group of the extra-intelligent or extra-concerned or extra-virtuous that is exempt. I cannot think of any American who I know or have heard of who is not contributing in some way to destruction. And so we are by no means divided or readily divisible into saints and sinners in this regard. But there are legitimate distinctions that need to be made. These are distinctions of degree and consciousness. Some people are less destructive than others, and some are more conscious of their destructiveness than others. For some, our involvement in war is simply a practical compromise, a necessary reality, the price of modern comfort and convenience. For others, our involvement is an agenda for thought and work that will one day produce remedies. People who thus set their lives against destruction have necessarily confronted in themselves the absurdity that they recognised in their society. And they have seen that these public absurdities are and can be no more than the aggregate result of private absurdities. The corruption of community has its source in the corruption of character. Once our personal connection to what is wrong becomes clear, then we have to choose. We can go on, we can go on as before, recognizing our dishonesty and living with it the best we can. Or we can begin the effort to change the way we think and live. So this is not about Trump and Pence versus Biden and Harris. This is not about Republicans versus Democrats. This is not even about pacifism versus just war theory. This is about us coming to terms with the absurdity of our own society. This is about us finding the ability, perhaps a new ability, to step outside the two poles of the debate, which are set so narrowly apart from each other, they won't allow us to even think certain thoughts. Come out from her, John says. We have to be able to look at what we see in the corner of our eye, what is always there in the periphery of our vision. 
but which we've been conditioned not to look at for any length of time. Only then can the church begin to fulfil her prophetic calling to follow Jesus in proclaiming good news to the poor, binding up the brokenhearted, lifting up the oppressed, because we know the good news. Jesus is Lord and Caesar isn't. Amen.